For the last week, most of us have been having a quiet time, considerably less, less talking, less activity. As far as I know, there hasn't been any building work going on. I noticed the garden gate next to my cootie fell off and somebody sensibly lynched up against a bench and can be fixed at a later time. These opportunities we have for putting aside the activities of talking and doing things is not a judgment of talking and doing things, it's a contrasting way of being and it's aimed at deepening our seeing, our inner seeing. So I hope that uh, for the last week this has been the case and everybody has benefited uh, from this time. And as with that illustration I've often quoted about the ocean how we can be looking at the surface of the ocean where there can be massive waves thrashing around and at the same time in that same ocean on a deeper dimension it's really still and quiet. And if we look at our awareness in a similar way, if all we know is what is showing up on the surface level of awareness and we're not at all familiar with the possibility of deeper or alternative dimensions of awareness, then we're really missing out. We're not getting all the information. If all we see is what's on the surface, that's not the full picture by any means. Not being convinced by the apparent reality. Maybe you've already seen this, how things can appear to be a certain way, but that doesn't mean to say they're actually like that. Apparent reality and actuality are not necessarily the same thing. Perhaps you decide that before you go to bed you're going to get up in the morning and, and a certain time and, and do a certain amount of meditation. Because through this week there hasn't been any bells ringing and early in the morning people have been writing their own program and setting their own routine. And So perhaps you decided I'm going to get up at such and such a time and the alarm goes off and you wake up and think, oh no, this is definitely too early. And so you turn your alarm off and go back to sleep. And two hours later you wake up and you feel terrible. You think, oh, if only I'd got up when I said I was going to get up. On one level, on the apparent level, it can be very convincing. Definitely I need some more sleep here. And so we have some more sleep and we wake up feeling unpleasant. Or, of course, on the level of relationships, somebody says something a little unpleasant and, and you have the impulse to snap back at them with some snide comment and, and on, on one level it feels like I really want to you know, cutting down to size and, and 
you follow the impulse and, and then they follow back and the next thing you know you're having a, a real bargy-bargy. On the apparent level it did feel like maybe that reacting with something that was going to hurt this other person was suitable. Yet actually, was it really suitable? So, just mentioning that by way of illustration of how the apparent reality and actuality are not necessarily the same thing. And if we get this message, if we allow for this, if we register this, then that can be an encouragement. And even, even when we want to roll over and go to sleep again, say, no, actually, it just seems that way. We're not going to be, perhaps we're not going to be so convinced by that. Similarly, with the last week, with the reduction of uh, use of technology, probably most of us enjoy the facility of modern technology, being able to communicate and research, and you know, it's uh, so fast and so accessible, the information that is available now. And However, we're probably also aware how really addictive it can be. Maybe you decide that you're not going to engage with technology and it takes an effort, doesn't it? It takes, it takes an effort. It's not necessarily easy. Yeah. On an apparent level, we're losing out. And what's the result? Well, that increased simplicity, the lack of engagement, the lack of activity, the lack of busyness can conduce to inner quietude and, and perhaps even deepening. But it doesn't necessarily look like that. And, and that's why a few weeks ago I mentioned in a talk I gave about the function of wisdom and that, that teacher I met in Thailand all those years ago who talking about the dynamic, the function of wisdom. One aspect of wisdom is being able to see both sides. When there's not wisdom, we just see according to our preferences. We have a biased view on things. We tend to see what we want to see. Whether it's positive or negative depends on what sort of character we are. We have a partial view. However, for those who've done the work, they see the bigger picture. And that's the function of wisdom. If we, we can appreciate that, then again, once again, we can encourage ourselves that even though we, on one level, we may not want to make the effort to let go of technology or to determine a certain time to be doing sitting or walking meditation. Yeah. Or we do determine a time to do walking meditation. I'm going to do walking meditation for 40 minutes. And then after 10 minutes, oh, this is not getting anywhere. This is so boring. And, well, maybe if we do another 30 minutes, it'll be really, really interesting. Maybe it won't. We don't know. However, if we don't experiment, then we're not going to get to see. And so these opportunities we have, the opportunity to experiment, to hopefully arrive at a, a broader perspective on the life that we're living. Uh, not being fooled by 
what our preferences tell us. Our preferences tell us, roll over, go to sleep, eat more, say whatever we want. However, that's the apparent reality. What's the actuality? We're not kind of imposing dogma, saying this is the actuality, you've got to believe in it. That's not the Buddhist way. However, asking this kind of question that potentially takes our awareness deeper. Affluence and comfort can be really fooling. They can be fooled by these things. Similar to technology. From one perspective, it looks great. Increased affluence over the last decades. I think this is definitely a good thing. More education, better health, food, clothing, shelter and medicine with increased affluence is all good. Is it all good, really? Is there a consequence to this increased affluence? Certainly the planet has been depleted of a lot of resources, or not even resources, it's just depleted. We'll stop forests cut down, oceans polluted. Resources is just the way we look at things from the perspective of what I want to get out of it. It's not a resource, it's just life. And from a biased perspective, we can view it as resource and then maximize on our access to that which conduces to comfort, convenience and affluence. And yet the other side of it is that where we have all this affluence and convenience, we also, with that, comes the opportunity to avoid a lot of life's difficulties when, when we get upset about something. Do we really learn to live with feeling upset? Or do we distract ourselves? Well, what comes with affluence and convenience is the capacity for distraction. So now we have huge swathes of the world's population are addicted to distraction and when things are not going our own way we find we can't handle it then tragically uh, despite all the affluence there's a a serious uh, increase in suicide rates around the world which is a symptom of feeling like we can't handle it we distract ourselves and we don't then get the message. Like this chanting the Dhammachaka Sutta we've just done this evening where the Buddha is saying this is the message that when life hurts, when there's a struggle going on, that's, that's a message that we need to be heeding. We need to direct our attention so as to be able to get the message and understand that our relationship with life is one that's bringing about an experience of limitation, an experience of suffering. When we're addicted to distraction, we just see it as a nuisance. And how do we get out of this? How can we get away from this? And then we deny it. And so often it's the case that we deny the difficulties of life. and The pain of life doesn't get addressed. And so for many people, there's this big backlog of unaddressed, unmet suffering. This is how I personally understand the, the prevalence of cynicism 
in the world, despite all the affluence and convenience, there's also a, a, what seems to me a tragic amount of cynicism. Where does cynicism come from? Well, it seems to me that it comes from denied dukkha. You get angry or upset about something, and instead of learning from the experience of frustration and disappointment, we just bottle it away. And disappointment and anger and resentment is bottled away. It can turn toxic and one of the symptoms of that denied form of dukkha, I would suggest, is cynicism. So, when there's no wisdom, then we just see according to our preferences. How do we encourage ourselves to engage the work, engage the practices that serve our aspiration for the realization of wisdom? Part of it is this willingness to meet ourselves when we're struggling and not just distract ourselves, not just avoid it. For instance, going on a retreat like this last week or simplifying life. When life is too busy and too active, then we don't recognize some of our habits, our habits of for instance, avoidance. We easily think, when we're suffering, we easily fall into the habit of, of thinking that somebody else is doing it to us. Can a wise person, can a truly wise person really suffer? They can feel pain, but do they suffer? Did the Buddha suffer? The Buddha was very clear about it. All suffering ceased. Didn't mean to say he didn't experience pain. The story of sitting up in Vulture's Peak, sunning his back in the because of the presumably pain of arthritis as he got older. And pain is one thing. However, the Buddha didn't suffer because there was a wisdom to see the reality of the whole body-mind. There was no identification with the body-mind. There was no attachment. There was no clinging. The Buddha had done his work, and so there was no suffering. For us, we need somehow to encourage ourselves to do that sort of work whereby we can meet ourselves where we're doing what we're doing that generates the causes for suffering. Living simply, putting time aside for formal meditation practice, for retreat, by way of a contrasting perspective in the life that we're living, not because being on retreat all the time is the answer or well, not talking is the answer, rather contrasting to what we normally do, and, and in that experience, perhaps gaining a glimpse of, of the life that we're living from a different perspective. And also, consistency of effort. And it's sometimes uh, tempting to get all fired up and enthusiastic. We maybe read something or hear something that inspires us, and Oh yes, I've got to get on with practice and so I'm going to do two hours meditation every day and, and reading the suttas and, and downloading Dhamma talks from the internet and, and really throwing ourselves intensely into practice. And because we take on too much, we can't keep it up and, and then we get exhausted and we're not getting the results we're looking for, so we end up giving up. So consistency of effort 
is worth paying attention to. If we want to learn how to meet the denied dukkha of life, so it's not festering away and causing obstructions, we want to learn how to welcome that which is unwelcome in our lives. And we've all got stuff that's unwelcome. Mm-hmm. If we're interested in welcoming that which is unwelcome, then living simply, consistency of effort, these things help. And to, again, to prioritize wisdom. Perhaps pick up some of these exercises and learn how to focus attention. As was my experience in the beginning, a little bit of focused attention can take the mind to a a peaceful place and there's a lot of happiness there. And and my life certainly had not been happy up until that point. And and finding that happiness was was almost intoxicating. I didn't realize for a very long time that the happiness that comes from a a relatively peaceful mind is not the same thing as the the discipline of attention that the Buddha was encouraging. And prioritizing wisdom also conduces to having faith in the Buddha's teachings. And even though some of the teachings that we might read or hear about don't agree with how we feel about things, if there's faith that the Buddha was awakened, the Buddha knew what he was talking about, the Buddha knew the path to freedom from suffering, then even when the teachings don't accord with my way of doing things, perhaps there's a better chance that we'll let go of my way and follow the Buddha's way. So like in the, some of the teachings the Buddha gave, is encouragement to be careful about the company that we keep. When the discourse called the, the discourse on greatest blessings and highest blessings and, and that starts off where the Buddha is approached and asked, could you please talk about the greatest blessings? And, and the very first line he comes out with is, avoid the company of those who are going to drag you down. And then the second line is associate yourself with those who are going to support you and lift you up. Well, literally, the first line is avoid fools. And the second line is associate yourself with those that are wise. So in other words, using our, our intelligence, using our capacity for discerning, there's a verse in the Dhammapada, verse 78, which says, do not seek the company of misguided friends. Beware of degenerate companions. Do seek the company of well-guided friends, those that support insight. So using our capacity for discerning what sort of company conduces to the development of wisdom. Maybe it doesn't agree with my preferences. That's perfectly understandable. This is where faith in those who are truly wise can support us, can can carry us and can help us. And and the Buddha's encouragement on developing humility. We might like to be aiming for enlightenment. However, there's the groundwork that needs to be done. and, And if we're still intensely attached to my views and opinions, 
then instead of our effort really serving the development of wisdom, it can be serving the development of a, a somewhat spiritualized ego. And so the cultivation of humility, uh, and with humility the, the recognition of how we get affected by the company that we keep. We're vulnerable. It can sound very judgmental. You know, what's the Buddha saying? Don't associate with fools. And say, you know, what about compassion? So, well, even though we might like to think that we're compassionate and not being judgmental of people and not discriminating between those who are wise and those who are foolish, actually we could just be following our preferences. Maybe there'll be a time where insight is deep enough and secure enough whereby you can associate with those who might otherwise be pulling you down and encouraging habits of heedlessness. However, if there's a modicum of humility, it's maybe more honest to admit that actually I need to be really careful who I spend time with, who I talk with. The same applies with modesty. And the Buddha was asked by the first bhikkhuni, Bhikkhuni Mahapajapati, for a summary of his teachings. And the Buddha listed these eight points that this is Dhamma, this is not Dhamma. And one of the things he pointed out was modesty. Being overly ambitious, where we compare ourselves. I was talking to somebody the other day and they were saying how they compare themselves to to the great teachers and that can be useful up to a certain point however we don't know where the great teachers started out from what they were like when they started out in practice and we often don't know the difficulties that they've had to endure in their practice so when we're comparing ourselves with others we need to be really careful that we don't just go into judging ourselves in a heedless way there is useful judgment it's called discernment. And then there's unhelpful judgment where it's just the expression of preference. We need to be quite subtle in, in how we feel about being judgmental. Being judgmental can mean being totally caught up and lost and, and having opinions about everybody and following our liking and disliking. It might also be the activity of discernment, as I is this skillful? Is this unskillful? Does this conduce with wisdom or does this not conduce with wisdom? Right. So a modicum of humility and modesty and they can help support us in our effort to meet ourselves where we feel limited, to welcome that which is unwelcome. And agility is another quality worth reflecting on. Again, it can be tempting just to find what we're good at and then work on that. You know, maybe we have a facility for focusing attention and, and developing samadhi, and so we just do more samadhi, more samadhi, more samadhi, and, and until we go throw ourselves way out of balance. So, so the encouragement you read the 
the suttas, the description that the Buddha gave about, for instance, the, the four foundations of mindfulness. It's not just being mindful of the breath. There's all sorts of teachings and practices we could be paying attention to. However, the Buddha articulated very precisely that which is necessary, that which we need to be paying attention to. We remember the, the image of the handful of leaves when he picked up the leaves from the floor of the forest and asked the monk, which is greater, all, all the leaves and all the trees in this forest were these leaves in my hand. And well, of course, the leaves and the trees are much greater than the few leaves in your hand. And so the Buddha pointed out, so it is, the knowledge, the wisdom, the experience, the understanding that I have is much greater than what I teach. However, what I teach, this handful of leaves, these dhammas, this is what needs to be paid attention to. So the four foundations of mindfulness, or, or the four modes of, of movement, and the, the, called the iriyapada, like sitting, standing, walking, lying down. It's not just about practicing meditation when we're sitting. You notice how you see Buddha images sometimes sitting, sometimes standing, sometimes walking, sometimes lying down. The encouragement is to, to be agile. And it's perhaps okay when we're in our room sitting on a cushion and there's no distracting influences and maybe we feel we can be quite together and, and quite okay. And then we come to a community meeting and the work monk tells you to do something you don't want to do and you go, why does he always ask me to do that work? And we get, we get indignant. And are we there for that? Can we practice with that? Or if you're the work monk and you're enjoying having this influence over controlling the monastery and you, you get all puffed up and, and, and intoxicated with the power of, of bossing people around. And you catch yourself doing that. And do we just fall into judgment and condemn ourselves and say, this is embarrassing after all these years of practice. Look at me, I'm hopeless. And, or can we meet ourselves there, see ourselves at that level with some perspective and, and learning? So agility also is something worth reflecting on. If we, we want to welcome that which is unwelcome, agility is necessary. Not just specialising and being able to recite the suttas and understand the suttas. People can be have a great understanding of the suttas and, and then getting pulled into an argument. Well, what did the Buddha really mean by the Paticca Samuppada, the 12 links of dependent origination? Is this referring to just this life and psychological states, or is this referring to this life and previous lives and future lives? And, and you know, scholars of Buddhism can get into arguments about what the Buddha really meant. Well, I don't think the Buddha really meant that we should get into arguments. That's you know, the result of becoming too specialised, the lack of agility. Yes, there's a place for studying the, the, the texts. However, there's much more to practice than studying texts. And perhaps one last thing to mention that is, uh, certainly seems to me worth thinking about is the, the value of focused aspiration. Let's not underestimate the value of regular, ritualized repetition of our aspiration. We're here because we have aspiration. We, we trust that there is something worth realizing. 
there are different dimensions of awareness that we don't have access to and we'd like to have access to them. We have faith, we have confidence that selfless wisdom and compassion can be realized and we want to realize it. And so that aspiration, let's not underestimate the value of devotional practices, ritual practices. I've spoken before about how when I was visiting a monastery in Wat Wat Bhavantat in northeast of Thailand and the Venerable Tanajan Mahabua came in in the morning before arms round and went straight to the shrine and, and bowed down and paid respects to the shrine. Tanajan Mahabua is reputed to have finished his work and, and one might think, well, what's he doing engaging in these practices for? And, well, it was part of his nature. Even the Buddha, after his enlightenment, one of the first thoughts that came to his mind were, to whom can I pay respects? And he realized there wasn't anybody who saw more clearly and, and knew more accurately than he did, so he paid respect to the Dhamma itself. Bowing, chanting, these ritual practices that we have, maybe in the beginning we don't see, don't feel the benefit, well, that's not much different from you know, when you start going to the gym and doing some exercises to build up some strength and some ability. And going to the gym once or twice, is, you're not necessarily going to notice the increased ability or, or going to learn Tai Chi and you know, learn the basic movements. It doesn't mean to say you're immediately going to feel a benefit. And so it is with our ritual practices, beginning the day, bowing to the shrine, and making the determination that whatever happens today, may it be for the development of goodness and wisdom. Goodness that nourishes the cultivation of wisdom. Or words that really express what our heart is longing for. Starting the day, every day, and then ending every day, acknowledging the limitations, the mistakes that we've made, like we do in our normal chanting here, asking for the Buddha Dhamma Sangha to bear witness to our acknowledgement of fault, so acknowledging our limitations and there and cultivating humility and, and then also dedicating the punya, the wholesome potential that's generated, the effort we've made, instead of getting all puffed up and pleased with ourselves, you know, accumulating all this punya this, at the end of the day as a, as a ritual, as we do here, the chanting imina, punya, kamina, dedicating this punya to the well-being of others and this act of generosity, giving away. Or the many other ritual practices that can serve to support us. And so let's not, once again, let's not underestimate the value of regularly restating our aspirations for realisation. Thank you very much this evening for attention. Andamayang Dhamma Gathaya Sadhu Gada